again, uh, bring you greetings uh, from Redeemer Baptist Church. Um, I say that every time, but last time I got home, uh, Jeff Mooney, our pastor, asked me, did you actually say hello? I said, yes, I did, but so now I can, can say that answer yes again. Um, it's, it's so good to be with you. I was telling my wife this morning, she's, um, my wife is pregnant and she was feeling great this morning or else she would have, she would have been here to say hi to all of you. But um, I was sharing with her this morning just the, the warmth I've received here. I've, I've been really happy um, in, in the ways that you've received me. I felt so welcome, so I really appreciate that. Uh, I know when I first came um, a, a while ago, I said I'd be giving three sermons looking at the gospel in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm called a little bit of an audible because I came across this text um, while studying for, for another thing and, and felt that it would be fitting to sort of um, round out. This is my last time for the, for the summer to be here with you all in the early fall, and so I thought it would be a great thing to, to round out with. Um, this morning I want to talk about justification. Justification is the the Bible uses to describe, to describe being declared or made right by God. So how do we become right in the eyes of God? We are justified. That's the term the Bible uses. So this is where I want to start. There are not many ideas that sell more books or enliven more Twitter threads or fill more news stories than self-esteem. Self-esteem. How you think about, how you feel about yourself, how you evaluate yourself is one of the most formative ideas of our day. But the modern discussion on self-esteem usually only goes one direction. The scales here are, are really imbalanced. Rarely will you find a substantial case made that someone needs to actually modify their self-esteem down because it's too high. Few people will admit to serious struggles with arrogance or with pride. Most of our quests for humility are occasional acts of self-deprecation or, or bashfulness. Most of the discussion is actually around methods or strategies or reasons why your self-esteem is actually too low. And it should be higher instead. With all that's going on in the world, you probably feel bad about the way things are going. And really, instead, you should feel good about yourself. After all, look at all the good that you do for others. You come here on a Sunday morning instead of being out in other places. You're a good person, after all, who occasionally makes some mistakes. But who doesn't? After all, quote, Let him without sin be the first to throw a stone. End quote. So how do you see yourself? If you and I were sitting down and we were and I asked you about your self-esteem, how would you answer? Self-esteem has a direct connection to this idea of justification. Justification addresses the way in which we're made right before God, and self-esteem is really tightly bound up with that, and here's why. How you see yourself directly impacts how you view the gospel. It's tied to how you see yourself in regards to the work of Jesus. Justification, right? So this reality leads us to our main point. Here's our main idea this morning. Justification is only for sinners. Justification is only for sinners. 
The only people who are justified, the only people who are made right before God are those who know that they approach God entirely wanting and bankrupt. That all they have to offer is their own sin and are in need of the grace of God. Those are the people who receive justification. Justification is only for sinners. Now, Jesus uses a parable in Luke chapter 18 to teach this lesson. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text for us, and then I'll kind of give you the structure of where we're going. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 18, or it's there in your, your, um, your worship guide, we'll start in verse 9 and read through verse 14. It says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I think I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. So justification is only for sinners, and there are four movements in this parable that we'll kind of see unpack this main idea. So the four movements. Number one, the purpose. The purpose. Number two, the people. Number three, the prayers. And number four, the pronouncement. It's good Baptist alliteration here, okay? and the pronouncement, all unpacking for us this idea that justification is only for sinners. So, movement number one, the purpose. Look down there at verse 9. Jesus tells this parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So, the reason Jesus tells this parable, Luke tells us right up front. It's because as Jesus gathers, he's looking around, and he can see into the hearts of the people around him, that they are self-righteous, self-trusting. And therefore, in trusting in ourselves, we look at other people, not like us, contempt. Luke does this often in, in this gospel. There are several places where... Just kidding. Good now? Not good. Good? Okay, all right. I'm just going to keep going. And you Give me a high sign if it goes bad. Okay, Luke does this often in the gospel where um, he will give you sort of in, in before a parable, uh, he will give you the purpose stated right up front. So Luke chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast. In verse 7 in Luke 14, Jesus says, he tells this parable because he's looking around and there are some people who choose for themselves seats of honor at the wedding banquet. Or if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, 
Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. These, these two groups gather to have dinner with Jesus. On the one side, there are the tax collectors and sinners. And then on this other side, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes. And it says that the Pharisees grumble to themselves. that They're looking at Jesus and saying, how could you eat with those people? And Jesus responds by telling the story of the prodigal son. And then just here in Luke chapter 18, if you jump up into verses, uh, verse 1 here, before telling the story of the persistent widow, Jesus says he tells this parable in order to encourage and bolster his apostles that they should always pray and never lose heart. Luke gives us these purposes, these interpretive keys up front in the parables to help us read them. And so here in verse 9, Luke tells us that the purpose that Jesus has in telling this parable is to expose the hearts of those who sit before him who are trusting in themselves. That I have all that I need for righteousness right here, and you don't. Right? So there's I'm righteous, and the others get treated with contempt. So I'll just ask a, a, a question here for all of us. Does this parable have your name on it? Do you find yourself, just like I do sometimes, that all I might need for righteousness is actually can be found right in here? And that I can look to others that, that in my mind, registered in the then category who were treated with contempt. As I prepared this, um, this text, um, one of the things that, uh, that happens for, for people who, who preach is that um, you sit with the text for a while and, and it does a lot of work internally before I come and bring it to you. And so uh, I'm just sitting with this text all week and I'm realizing over and over and over again all of these scenarios, situations, where I am looking to myself and going, well... You know what? Today was a rough day, but at least I'm not doing, and you just fill in the blank. It was, a, it was a convicting week in that regard, just being confronted over and over again with the sins that are talked about here being present in my own life. So because I care for you, I'm hoping to pass the gift of conviction on to you this morning. This parable is supposed to expose our hearts when we are self-trusting, when we are looking to others with contempt. So how do you view yourself? And therefore, how do you view others? How you answer those questions is crucial to understanding this text because, again, justification is only for sinners. Movement number two, the people. The people. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus begins the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So both of these figures, well known in the first century world, it's not abnormal that they would be involved in a story. It's not abnormal they would both go to the temple or or that they would both be praying. The thing that's abnormal is how uniquely opposed they are. These are two complete and utter moral opposites. Could not find two people more on the further extremes of the moral scale in the first century. These are moral opposites. So let's start with the Pharisee. What is a Pharisee? A Pharisee is a, it's, it's a lay movement of, of men, and they're devoted to the Torah. 
The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, the Pharisees would memorize those books. Okay, so there are 50 chapters in Genesis. There are 40 chapters in Exodus. Are you going to get to around 200 chapters total in these five books? These guys memorized all of that. He's wildly devoted to these texts. And what they're hoping for is to internalize and then teach these texts to society in order to transform society by the Torah. That's the Pharisee. It's this religious, eager, kind of pastor-ish guy who's a part of a group in the first century world. Now, here's the most important thing to know about the Pharisees for the sake of our parable here. These are the good guys. If you were living in this context, hearing this parable from Jesus... These are the guys on the right side of the tracks. I say that because if you were like, if you've been in church for, for some amount of time, you probably have this really negative view of the Pharisees. Like Jesus shreds the Pharisees over and over and over again in the Gospels. And so we find them to be like, hey, you're the bad guys. But in reality, in the, in the, in the first century world, these were the pastors, these were the Bible scholars. These were the good guys. And for the audience of this parable, they are thinking, if we're going to talk about justification here, Jesus, and you line up a Pharisee and a tax collector, there's no question here. There's no need to teach us, Jesus, about who is right. It's very obvious. It's the Pharisee. These are the good guys. They are the ones whose example is to be followed. So keep that in mind as we go throughout the story. The other person who comes up to the temple to pray... It's a tax collector. So in the first century world, what is a tax collector? It's not somebody who works for the IRS. It's not your accountant. Tax collectors are folks who have purchased from the Roman Empire the right to, to enact and collect taxes on Jewish citizens or to continue funding Roman occupation. These are national traders. These guys sold their national identity in order to fund a foreign empire coming in and occupying Palestine and doing so with brutality and with violence. These are the lowest of the low. Not only are they national traders, but they're thieves. So you'd be, you'd be driving out of town and you, you come to the toll booth and the guy there says, hey, there's, there's a tax for you know, driving on this Roman road. Here's the tax. And you say, wait a second. I, I paid this tax last week, and, and it was not that high. And this guy says, sorry, pay the tax or go home. And you really have little to no recourse to fight that. You had all the power of the Roman Empire behind this tax collector, so you pay up or, or else. So they would just skim some off the top for themselves and be on their merry way. We really would struggle to find a modern equivalent uh, to give an, as an example of a tax collector. This is the closest thing I found. I've been, um, I've been reading and watching some documentaries about World War II. Um, there's a couple at our church who are in their 90s, and um, I had lunch with them recently, and they said, hey, we should, we should talk about World War II. And so I've been, I've been reading and watching some documentaries. Um, every now and again, I've come across in some of these uh, materials, um, you'll, you'll meet like a, a mayor, or, or a kind of a, a provincial governor or something in a French town in the 1940s. 
And the story will be told that this guy is actually lining his own pockets with cash because he's colluding with the Nazis. And you look at this guy and you're like, you're, you're selling your own people to their death because you want some cash? Like, you're, you're this morally reprehensible person. That's the kind of reaction, the kind of category a tax collector would have had in the first century world. So you can imagine, if you're going to pitch yourself as being a religious rabbi, a teacher, these are not the guys you want to be spending your time with. The Pharisee and the tax collector. You're two moral opposites, and Jesus includes them both in this parable. And again, if you are in the original audience here, you're starting to get the drift of where the parable is going. And you're like, get him, Jesus. Like, if these tax collectors think that they can be righteous, this list better be long of what you're about to explain on how they're going to repay their debts and make this all right. They need to memorize the text like us. They need to fast like us. Break out the list, Jesus. And what comes next shocks them, right? Because if someone's going to be righteous here, it's going to be the Pharisee, but not in the eyes of Jesus. Why? Because justification is only for sinners. Movement number three. We've got the purpose, we've got the people, and now sort of the climax of the the parable here, the prayers. The prayers. So pick it up, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to a sinner. So two prayers here. The first one, the first of all, notice his posture. His posture. The text says there in verse 11, he stands by himself. This, this self-sustaining, no need of anything that God can offer. I've got everything here in myself that I would ever need. Entirely on his own. His posture just says, I've got this. Not only his posture, notice how he explains his obedience. The Pharisee gives three categories by which he makes himself as obedient and righteous. So the first is negative obedience. Right? He says, thank you, God, I am not like fill in the blank. Negative obedience. He's declaring his righteousness by the sins that he has not committed. The sins that he has successfully avoided. And therefore, righteous. Now, when we do this, when we talk about the sins that we haven't committed, I would propose to you what we're really doing is trying to comfort ourselves by providing a smokescreen so that we don't have to deal with the sins we actually have committed. And so we just say loud enough to drown out the other voices, 
that we are holy and we are righteous because at least we haven't done this. We've avoided that. We've stopped doing that. And we do that to enhance and fortify our own desire for self-exaltation or higher self-esteem. If that's the goal, to increase how you feel about yourself in moral categories, then yes, follow this example. Become an expert in the things that you don't do that other people do happen to struggle with. Negative obedience. Second category, the Pharisee practices legalistic obedience. Right? Verse 12 says he fasts twice a week, gives tithes of all that he gets, both of which go well beyond the scope of what's prescribed in the Torah. He has added to the laws of God his own set of laws by which he evaluates himself as righteous. And again, many of us have built this pattern in our own lives of things that we know that we can keep. So we add those as if they're they're laws like that God would have in order to establish our own righteousness. And our hearts are wicked. We do this in subtle ways. So I'll give you my own example of this. See if it see if these shoes these shoes fit you. I often find myself um, trying to operate my life at like breakneck speed. I have a really hard time resting or slowing down. The reason for that. Uh, I've got this deep-seated fear that if and when I did have to sit and be silent and practice solitude, I'm really afraid what I'm going to find in here. If I had to rest and I had to let something or someone else carry on the work, what would that mean for me and my identity? What kind of sins would bubble up in my own heart if I were quiet enough to hear them. So instead, you know what's easier? Just go, 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 go. And in fact, in all of my going, I might be able to convince you that the going is what makes me righteous. This Pharisee is sure to congratulate himself on keeping rules that he has added on top of God's laws. So, what are those rules and habits in your life? Are there things that actually have nothing to do with the Word of God in regards to obedience, but are the ways that you establish your own righteousness in distinction from the righteousness of others? Legalistic obedience. Third category. The Pharisee practices comparative obedience, right? You see this really obviously in the text. Thank you, God, I am not like other men. And then he gives these categories. Extortioners, adulterers, the unjust. And then he takes it one step further and says, even like that guy, the tax collector. Right, this is wicked. We are so so averse to dealing with who we are in our own brokenness and our own sin, we will actually pick up the brokenness of somebody else and use it to prop ourselves up as righteous. This is all you're doing when you compare your own sins with somebody else's. 
And in reality, all that does is reveal our own brokenness anyway. We so desperately want to feel good about ourselves and hide from confronting our sin that we will pull in somebody else's sin to cast light on our holiness. At least I'm not doing what they're doing. Right, so you can put this in whatever modern category you want to put it in. Right, so at least you're not saying those things about race that those people are saying. At least you're not acting like those people are in regards to their way of handling COVID. Right, there's all sorts of categories we can put in here. This is the problem with that strategy, though. It doesn't matter at all how you compare with somebody else. It only matters how you measure up to God's perfect standard. So you can create whatever list you want to that you can use to compare to somebody else. The bottom line reality is that you will fall short. We will all fall short in light of God's holiness. Now, all of this, the prayer of the Pharisee, is marked by one thing that is glaringly missing. Did you notice in this prayer, the Pharisee asks for nothing? No requests, no needs of God. This entire prayer is a demonstration of a person whose sole desire is to make himself feel good and let everybody else know it. This Pharisee is like someone who goes to the doctor for for an annual checkup and he arrives at the doctor's office and the the, the person calls him back and, and the doctor says, hey, how are you feeling? And he says, well, doc, I think I'm doing great. I drove here this morning. I was breathing in and out on my own. My lungs are working great. I got out of the shower this morning and looked in the mirror. My muscle tone, as you can see, is ideal. I've got no pains. My circulation is great. I've got no diseases, no ailments, no infections. In fact, to be honest with you, I'm not really sure why I'm even here. And I was just sitting in the waiting room with the folks you've got coming in today. None of the stuff that I've said is true about them. You've got a long day ahead of you. But as for me, no problems. My health is perfect. He has no need, asks for nothing, and his self-esteem is sky high. But if he would just be quiet for a minute and lay down on the examination table and let the doctor do his work, it would quickly become apparent to the doctor that none of his testimony is true. The doctor performs the exam. He gives you one of those medical groans. You know, uh-oh. And you say, wait, what, what's wrong? And he says, oh, probably Nothing. We'll test just in case. Test come back, the tests come back and reveals. The doctor calls and says, you're dying. The Pharisee says to God, I'm, I'm fine. I'm here. It's Sunday. You know exactly where I'm going to be. I'm here at church. You see me here every week. You, know, you see my checkbook? You see how I treat people? You saw me reading my Bible this morning. You saw that I prayed for this person and for that person. I'm fine. But remember the purpose of this parable. Jesus says at the very beginning of this text, 
there are folks in the audience who trust in themselves that they are righteous and they treat others with contempt. Now, what about the prayer of the tax collector? The prayer of the tax collector. First of all, notice his posture. Verse 13, the tax collector stands far off. He seems to feel such a sense of guilt and shame that he can't bring himself to come near the center of the temple. This is where the presence of God would sort of most uh, poignantly be. If you remember uh, from a few weeks ago when we talked about the Day of Atonement, and we talked about how the presence of God is located specifically in this, in this place in the temple. This, this task letter can't bring himself to go there, to be near the presence of God. The text tells us he's unable to bring his eyes to look upward to heaven. He beats his chest in sorrow and in regret. This man knows himself. He's not in any denial about who he is, refuses to cover up the darkness that he finds. He knows himself. Second, notice his prayer. In distinction from the Pharisee, this prayer, four words, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. That phrase, be merciful, in the original language here, is actually the phrase, propitiate me. Propitiate me. The Bible speaks of a, of a term that's uh, called propitiation. Propitiation has to do with the offering of a sacrifice that will appease God's wrath by absorbing God's justice. That is propitiation. It's the offering of a sacrifice that appeases God's wrath by absorbing God's justice. And that is what the tax collector is asking for. God, be merciful to me. I know that I have earned your wrath and that I can bring nothing to the table to change that. So provide a sacrifice that can appease your wrath and absorb your justice. Do so for me. Now why would he ask for that? And the answer to that question is found in how he identifies himself. So end of verse 13. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. A sinner. So this man knows himself, and he knows himself in the most important way any of us can know ourselves, which is in relation to God. Who are we? Not in relation to our neighbor or to our opponent, but in relation to God. And the answer is found right here. We are sinners. He makes no partial excuse, no qualified apology. It's this full, honest, sober identification of who he is in relation to God, a sinner. And therefore, the only thing he prays is for God to propitiate, for God to be merciful. Right? So, just like for the Pharisee, this man goes to the doctor and he says, Doc, I'm desperately sick. I've got nothing that I can do to cure myself. Whatever you have, whatever treatment and whatever medicine you would prescribe, I'll take it. I know I'm sick and you are the only one who can help me. This tax collector is desperate. So when was the last time that you were spiritually desperate? 
When was the last time that you encountered your own sin in such a way that it provoked you to acknowledge your own desperation before God? Or do you feel a deeper connection to the self-sustaining prayer of the Pharisee? If there were to be a transcription of the last time that you prayed, how would it read? Whose prayer here would it be more like? When was the last time you were spiritually desperate? Desperation is uncomfortable. We don't like it. We like to be prepared and self-assured and self-confident, in control of how people see us, in control of our reputations, in control of our righteousness. The Pharisee is often alive and well in us. We often see ourselves as having very little need, and yet the reality stands, justification is only for sinners. If you're here this morning and you're, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I wonder what you're feeling in reading and hearing a text like this. Have you ever thought of what it would be like to stand before God and have to give an account of your life? The things you've thought, the things that you have said, the things that you have done or not done, how would you justify them standing before God? Would you follow the example of this Pharisee? Would you load up in your mind all of the people that you know that you are better than? The sins that you have not committed? The ways that you have helped others? Or would you follow the example of this tax collector? Knowing You bring nothing to God by which he would count you righteous. And yet also knowing that there is a sacrifice offered for you to make you righteous. Have you ever asked God to pardon you like this tax collector does? Ask God to be merciful to you. You can do that today. You can be justified in your chair. God has indeed offered a propitiation, a sacrifice to appease his wrath, absorb his justice, that you can take hold of by faith in Jesus. The things that separate you from God can be destroyed in the blood of Jesus. Take hold of them by faith. Trust that God is the one who can justify you, Trust not in yourself. You fall woefully short, just like all of us do. Jesus does not. Trust him. And you can be justified. Okay, the purpose, the people, the prayers. Movement number four, the pronouncement. The pronouncement. Last verse here, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this shocking turn of events to conclude the story, Jesus announces that it's not the Pharisee who is justified. Instead, it is the tax collector. Remember, the Pharisee would be considered the moral exemplar, the hero, but not in the eyes of Jesus. Instead, it is the sinner who goes down to his house justified instead of the Pharisee. So, the Pharisee then, by implication, is not justified. He is condemned. He finds his fasting and his tithing, his memorizing and everything else, wanting before God. And the man who is justified finds that the thing that justified him is this plea, this acknowledgement of sinfulness and a provision of a sacrifice. Justification is only for sinners. It's only for those who see themselves in need. Right? We see this in Luke chapter 5. Jesus calls Levi, a tax collector, to follow him. And these Pharisees stand off to the side and they say, Jesus, don't you know who that is? Don't you know that guy steals from people? Don't you know all of these things about him? He's not like us, Jesus. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, the well have no need of a physician, but only the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Justification is only for sinners. So, If you know yourself to be a sinner, praise God, there is justification for you. So how do you view yourself? Are you on a continual quest for higher self-esteem? For better identity? Have you made a habit of practicing comparative obedience? Friend, please hear the testimony of the scriptures. You are a sinner. And according to this text, that's exactly who you need to be to be justified by Jesus. There's no comfort to be had in higher self-esteem. But there is eternal comfort to be had in knowing that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. It's the only self-esteem you need, the only way you need to view yourself. Sinner, justified. Justification is only for sinners. Now, just briefly here, I know I'm going super long. Um, uh, Just applying this text a little bit. Uh, What I want to do to apply this is take the purpose of the parable we saw in verse chapter 9 and give us some ways to combat and battle these sins. So, Jesus says in verse 9, there are people who trust in themselves that they are righteous, and they treat others with contempt. So, how do we battle these sins of self-righteousness and treating others with contempt? So, number one, how do we battle seeing ourselves as higher than we ought to? Uh, here's Here's what I want to propose. Let's all together memorize... Romans chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8. Okay, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. 
Let me read this to you and show you why I'm using it here. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right, here's the deal. We all struggle at times of thinking of ourselves too highly. Of thinking of ourselves as more important, more sanctified, more holy than we ought. And one of the best ways to combat those habits is to have Scripture resonating in our minds and in our hearts throughout the day that the Holy Spirit can provoke into our minds in moments where we are tempted to sin. So these verses tell us who we really are. Notice some of the descriptions. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love that while we were still sinners, those are our identity markers. And yet, we're also told here that these are the kinds of people that God loves and that Christ dies for. So I would just urge you, in the coming weeks, memorize these verses. As you meet together, both here and just in personal relationships, man, start those meetings by saying, hey, let's, let's recite scripture together. Help each other. Right, you can do this in your morning devotional time. You can have these verses play on your phone in the car. When you gather together, quote these to each other. Let's memorize these three verses, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, in an effort to reorient ourselves to the identity the Bible says we have. Sinners justified. Justification is only for sinners. Second application. How do we fight seeing others as lower than ourselves and treating them with contempt. Here's my answer. I want us to develop eyes for targets of God's mercy. Develop eyes for targets of God's mercy. In the last 18 months, one of the glaring things about uh, Christian interaction with culture is our willingness to treat others with contempt our willingness to see others in a lower hierarchical setting than we are. We've become habituated to seeing other people as our enemies, our rivals, our opponents. Right, so you, you examine yourself here. Do you hear the echoes of your voice in the Pharisee's prayer? Thank God I'm not like them. We have to develop eyes for those to whom God can show mercy. This has to be the way that we see people. We have to be unsatisfied with contemptuous treatment. We must grow a distaste for seeing others as cultural opponents. We must repent and turn the other way. Develop eyes for targets of God's mercy. And I don't just mean seeing unbelievers this way. I mean seeing believers this way as well. Seeing each other this way. God is not only showing mercy in saving sinners in a salvific way, but also in sanctifying sinners 
Those of us in this room, in our communities, we must resolve to see other people, believer or unbeliever, as targets of God's mercy, as those for whom Christ has died and therefore can change, just like he changed us. The way that um, my pastor has said this in the past People from other places in life's journey should be safe on our lips and safe in our hearts. Safe in the way that we talk about them, safe in the way that we think about them. The way that this Pharisee in our text sees other sinners can never be true in this room. We must resolve to see other people as targets of God's mercy. So how do you do this? You spend time together, right? Proximity breeds empathy. So the people that you see as your political rival or as your ethnic enemy or as your cultural opponent, spend time with them. Get to know these people. Pray for them. Repent when you gossip about them or when you slander or caricature them. And by the way, just in closing here, these two applications are tied together. It is only in seeing ourselves as sinners in need of of repentance and need of justification that we can see other people as targets of God's mercy. Justification is only for sinners. So how do you view yourself? Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that the words of Romans 5 are true, and they're true about us who have trusted in Jesus. That while we are weak and that we have been ungodly, and while we were yet sinners, you have loved and died for us. So we pray, Father, that you would help us both to see ourselves and to see others as those to whom you can and will be merciful. Help us to be conduits, vessels of your mercy flowing and extending to those who desperately need it. Give us eyes to see, Father, the people the way that you see them. We pray all of this through Christ. Amen.